1 Kings chapter 11. So in the first ten and a half chapters of 1 Kings, Solomon has served as a model of faithful love and obedience to the Lord. I don't think there's any question about that. When we're introduced to him in chapter 3, verse 3, you can go ahead and turn there. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, our introduction to Solomon says, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, if you remember when we went through that, that is likely a reference to simply Israel, in that instance, would go out and they had places of worship where they would worship the Lord in the high places. That's probably not a reference to idol worship. We see how that develops a little bit later. And part of the reason I believe that is because We don't find any idol worship in most of David's reign and in most of Solomon's early reign, and it's not until we get to the end of Solomon's life where we begin to see that. But the most important words of that verse 3 is that Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David. When the Lord appeared to him in chapter 3, he offered him whatever he wanted, and Solomon asked for a listening heart, and we know that the Lord was very pleased with that because he gave him not just a listening heart, but... Other things as well, including peace around the area and wealth, wisdom. Solomon himself even acknowledged the importance of being faithful to the Lord. If you look at chapter 8, verse 23, he's praying for the dedication of the temple and he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. You look at chapter 8, verse 46. Look at what he says. Chapter 8, verse 46. Get there here. He's talking about Israel here, God's people, and he says, When they sin against you, and you see this, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly, If they return to you with all of their heart, with all of their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may, or that you, I'm sorry, that they may have compassion on them. And so everything we've seen about Solomon, everything we've seen, has been nothing but a faithful, godly servant. There's one last passage we'll look at, verse 57 of chapter 8. These are Solomon's words when he's offering his benediction of Israel. May the Lord your God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God 
day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord your God, or the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. That's the Solomon we become acquainted with throughout the first ten and a half chapters of 1 Kings. It's not until we get to the second half of chapter 10 that we begin to see something is wrong. We begin to see cracks start to show up. The Lord had given specific laws to the king of Israel. Things that he expected them to obey. First off, the king had to be an Israelite. Second, they couldn't multiply silver or gold for themselves. They couldn't use that position to make themselves wealthy. They weren't allowed to multiply horses and chariots for themselves, meaning to build an offensive army. They were to rely on God to protect them. Not that they couldn't have an army, not that they couldn't have some horses or some chariots, but they couldn't build this massive war machine to attack their enemies and to take over more territory. God settled them in the land he wanted them to have, and they weren't to be like other nations and go out and conquer other nations, and so they were forbidden from basically gathering up horses and chariots for themselves. The kings were told they weren't allowed to multiply wives for themselves. They weren't to build harems like the other kings did. Lastly, they were to take and handwrite a copy of the law. Probably the the specific verses related to kings. They were to do that in front of the priests and they were to read it every day that they might remember what the requirements were for the priest. And we saw when we got to chapter 10 last, or two weeks ago, as we went through the first half, that Solomon had multiplied gold for himself, had multiplied horses and chariots, even got into the business of supplying chariots to those who would become Israel's enemies. And those were the first cracks that we began to see. And it's my conviction that the reason why chapter 10 was sort of arranged the way that it was, was to prepare us for what's going to happen today. Because today it's pretty abrupt. It's nothing short of shocking. The only way I can summarize what we're about to study here is that Solomon forsakes the Lord. Look at chapter 11. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was his first wife. Or the daughter of Pharaoh was his first wife. But he loved the Moabite women, Amorite, Edomite, Sidonians, and Hittite women. From the nations which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable god of the Amorites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. We're going to look at a couple of things here. One is the danger of Solomon's sin. You see that in the first couple of verses here. Not only did 
The Lord forbid the kings from multiplying wives for themselves, but he warned them specifically about associating and intermarrying with certain groups of people, certain pagan nations. If you go back, we won't turn there now, but Deuteronomy chapter 7 spells that out for them. The Lord says, don't mingle with them, don't intermarry with them. In fact, you know what, let's go ahead and do that anyway. You know what, we're gonna, we'll do that, we'll have some time here. I'm always trying to be careful about how much time we jump all over the place, but this will be a good one, I think, for us. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, just the first uh, few verses or so. I think it's the first five. Here we go. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jezebites. When I was in college, we used to even say the Parasites along with that. Seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give them your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people of the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. God was clear about two things there. Not associating with them and certainly not intermarrying with them. So the the instructions... We're pretty simple. No covenants, no showing favor, no intermarrying. But right out of the gate, what do we learn with Solomon here in chapter 11? In addition to his first wife, the daughter of Pharaoh, we're told that Solomon loved many foreign women. And he lists some of these tribes, some of the very ones that were named in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The author is quick to remind us of the dangers of associating with them because he goes right into it here. He quotes, you shall not associate with them, right in chapter 2. So he reminds the reader here, the author is writing, he says, Solomon loved these women, married these women, and he shows us that this was a direct violation of God's law by repeating it. You shall not associate with them, nor shall you associate, or nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely, and he gives us a precursor for what's about, what we're about to be told that they would turn Solomon's heart away from the Lord. What's interesting here is, you look at that last phrase, Solomon held fast to these in love. Our assumption is he's talking about the women there. But you want to know something that's kind of interesting? The These is in the masculine plural. And so these refers to the idols. And it's the author's a little bit of a play here. Solomon loved the women, but he not only loved the women, he held fast to their idols. And the reason for that is, if the these was in the feminine plural, it would mean the women. But the author wrote it in the masculine plural, which tells us he's referring to the nations and the idols, which were in the masculine plural in this text. And so, it's a little bit of a play there. We miss the nuance there in the English sometimes. But it's the author's way of saying that he, held, that he loved these women and he ended up holding fast to those nations and those idols. 
And we're going to see that here as we go through the text. That is a tragic statement. So he held fast to these in love, it says. That's the danger of Solomon's sin, was that it would lead him into idolatry. What about the depth, I'm sorry, the degree of his sin? We see that in verse 3. It says he had 700 wives. Calls them princesses. What that means is that most of these marriages were probably arranged as part of the treaty building with these nations. They would oftentimes enter into marriage relationships, one king with another king, and whether it's the daughter or another princess, and that would be part of the arrangement to enter into these treaties. And so the fact that these are princesses that he had married means that this was part of the treaty building. But it also says that he had 300 concubines there. Concubines were generally wives of lower status. Sometimes they were slaves or servants. They didn't share the same rights as a legal wife. But, you know, when you've got 700 wives and you've got 300 concubines, they all kind of just mix together. So we see here the degree of Solomon's sin. He was all in on this. It's even more involved in adultery and violating the Lord's commands against wives. These marriages violated the Lord's commandment against making covenants with these nations. And so it goes far beyond adultery and immorality here. So the degree of sin was pretty gross. If we keep going on here, we're now going to see the depth of Solomon's sin. That's in verses 3 through 8. Just as God had warned Solomon, look at what happens. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. The exact thing that God had warned the Israelites of, don't associate with them, don't intermarry with them because they will turn your heart away, that is the exact thing that the text tells us here had happened to Solomon. His wives led his heart away. It says that he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Amorites. What also isn't, just in reading this passage here, it's not real clear to us because you don't know who most of these gods are, do you? We have to look them up to know exactly who these gods were. Asherah and Ashtoreth, same individual, was the chief female deity of the Canaanites. She was associated with the moon, and she was the wife of Baal, the sun god. She was also the goddess of love, and worshipping her involved sexual immorality and ritual prostitution. That's how they worshipped Ashtoreth. Milcom, also known as Moloch, was primarily an Amorite god and depicted as part human, part bull. He had these giant horns. The primary means of worshipping him was infant sacrifice. It was brutal and horrific. You can go find descriptions of how they did this online. I'm not going to read them here. Another god, Chemish, which is mentioned here, the detestable idol of Moab. Not a whole lot is known about him, but in 2 Kings chapter 3, the king of Moab murdered his firstborn son on the city wall as a sacrifice to Chemish. So it also involved horrific forms of child sacrifice. It's no wonder these gods are described as detestable. Why Solomon's behavior, if you look at verse 6, referred to as evil in the sight of the Lord. It was pure wickedness. There's one last thing that the author mentions that describes the depth of Solomon's sin. And that's that he was seriously all in. If you look at verses 7 and 8 again. Excuse me, I've got to turn to 7 and 8 myself. 
Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, in the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. He didn't just build a temple here for Moloch and Chemish, but it says that he did this for all of his wives. One of the things about pagan religion and, and the Canaanite religion was that there were many, many, many gods. And so it sounds, based on what we see in the text here, that Solomon went on a building campaign, a building enterprise of building these temples for his wife, wives all over the place which would have involved a tremendous amount of investment and wealth and other things. And so Solomon was all in. His sin ran pretty deep. And so as we look at that, we come right out of the gate and we see that he had forsaken the Lord. It turned away from the Lord. It's totally unexpected in our text because everything up to this point, none of it gave us any indication until we again get to chapter 10, which starts to show some of those cracks. But right out of the gate, we're told that he had forsaken the Lord. And we see exactly what that involved, everything from child sacrifice to sexual perversion. So what happens? Well, Deuteronomy told us that in doing so, you would face, or they would face, the anger of the Lord. And so that's what we should expect. And sure enough, look at verses 9 through 13. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon. That is a tragic statement. It just grabs your heart. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord God said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have kept not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to, the, to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." Once again, the author doesn't pull any punches here. Comes right out of the gate and tells us the Lord is angry. The Lord was Israel's God. He chose them to be his people. He brought them out of Egypt, all the way into the land, protected them, gave them a tremendous time of peace now, even had Solomon build him a house, put his name on Israel, gave him wealth beyond imagination, wisdom, knowledge. He appeared to Solomon on two occasions and spoke to him on a third. How many of us get that opportunity? Solomon did. God even warned him personally. Didn't just leave him to the law, but gave him a personal warning about remaining faithful, not forsaking him. Solomon chose to disregard that. And so the Lord was angry. So the Lord informs him of the consequences. He says, I will surely tear the kingdom I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. We learn in the final verses of our passage that um, the Lord's referring to Jeroboam. He's the son of one of Solomon's servants. So the kingdom will be ripped out of Solomon's hands and will be given to Jeroboam, one of his servants. Solomon certainly should have been aware of what would happen if he did this. He's told that. Even his father David had warned him. First Chronicles chapter 28. As for you, my son Solomon... Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart 
and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the, of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Again, a harsh statement. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 9. Jump down to verse 4. This is the Lord talking to Solomon. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out from my sight so Israel will become a proverb and a byword for all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus and this? or to this land and to this house. And they will say, because they forsook the Lord and brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity upon them. Solomon knew the consequences, but chose to disregard God's warning. And as a result, the Lord is angry. And now Solomon is facing the consequences of that, which is that, the kingdom will be ripped out of his hands. It will not be passed on to his descendant. There are two caveats to this, however, we're told in the text. The first is in verse 12. that The Lord says he wouldn't rip the kingdom out of Solomon's hands directly. It would happen after Solomon's death. The second caveat is verse 13, and that he wouldn't rip the entire kingdom then out of Rehoboam's hands, but he would leave him a tribe of Judah for David's sake and for Israel's sake. And we learn that he did this because of David's faithfulness to him. And so Solomon will have the kingdom ripped out of his hands. It will go to his servant. But God will still honor David and his promises to David by allowing one of Solomon's descendants to keep just the tribe of Judah. And it isn't for Solomon. The Lord's not doing him a favor. He's doing it because of the faithfulness of David and what he promised David. So the Lord chastises Solomon here, tells him what's going to happen after he passes. So you wonder, what would be Solomon's response to that? We'll find out here in a moment. The Lord warned him about this. He now actually speaks to Solomon and tells him exactly what's going to happen. Now you remember what happened with David when David sinned against Bathsheba, took the life of Bathsheba's husband and committed adultery with Bathsheba. When David was confronted by the prophet, David repented. When David heard from the Lord and was convicted of his sin, he did what we're all called to do, which is to confess, to repent. I'm sure Solomon was familiar with David's story. What should we expect of Solomon? The Lord didn't send a prophet to him. He spoke to him directly here about his sin. I don't know about you folks, but that would put the scare into me. Probably the most tragic thing out of all this is Solomon's response. Verses 14 through 39, it's a long passage. I'm going to read through it in pieces here. This tells us what God does to try to now work about 
some type of repentance in Israel, but it applies to Solomon to some degree. Much of this will happen afterwards. But look at verses uh, 14 through 22. The Lord raises up an adversary here. The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, headed the Edomite. He was one of the royal line in Edom. For it came about when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites and his father's servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. They arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad had found great favor before Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes, the queen. The sister of Taphanes bore his son, Gerbeth, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Genabath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Send me away that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me? And behold, you are seeking to go to your own country. And he answered, Nothing. Nevertheless, you must, or, um, you must surely go. God raised up another adversary. So what you see here is the first adversary God raised up was this old enemy. So he brought an old enemy who was even helped along the way by Egypt and Israel, you know, ultimately um, an enemy of Israel's in the past. So God raises up this first adversary against Solomon. He brings a second adversary. This guy's name is Rezon. He was the king of Aram. That's described in verses 23 through 25. God raised up another adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Elida, who he had fled from the uh, Lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David slew them of Zobah. And he went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did, and he aboard Israel and reigned over Aram. Now if you remember, Solomon was experiencing a tremendous amount of peace for the first three quarters of his reign. It appears that these things are now happening near the end of his life, these enemies are coming out of the woodwork now. There's no more peace. The Lord is raising up his adversaries. And we know that the Lord raised up adversaries to Israel time and time again for a very singular purpose. To bring about their repentance. It was a form of judgment to bring them to repentance. We saw that throughout the book of Judges. Over and over and over as Israel would get fat and happy... They would begin to worship other gods. God would bring their enemies against them. They would cry out to the Lord for help, and he would send them a judge who would rescue them. They'd then get fat and happy again. They'd turn their backs on them. The Lord would send an adversary against them. And so what we see here is the Lord trying to bring about repentance with Solomon by bringing these adversaries against him, taking the peace away that he had enjoyed. The last adversary mentioned is Jeroboam, this was the one who would take the kingdom out of his hands. That's described 26 through 39. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zedarah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. 
Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior and Solomon saw that this young man was industrious. He appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Elijah and Shalonite found him in the, on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and he tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemish, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances, and his father as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen myself to put my name. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I'll be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. So the Lord is chastising Solomon here at the end of his life. I believe it's to bring about repentance bringing these enemies upon him. And we finally come to Solomon's response, verse 40. And what do we learn? His response to the Lord's rebuke, Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. David's response was remorse, confession, Repentance. Solomon's response was to puff up his chest and try to put an end to God's plan <laughs> to chastise him by trying to kill Jeroboam. So unlike his father David, Solomon once again shocks us with his response. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Everything we've learned about Solomon so far, this comes out of the blue. should shock us should be a little bit unnerving. He was faithful for most of his life. In fact, what an example we've seen in him. You know, everything from just his humility when he became king and saying, well, I don't know how to do this, Lord, to how he responded throughout his life, his prayer at the temple, his dedication, the, the things that Solomon said. Um, what a terrible way to be remembered, though, forsaking the Lord. It's interesting when you... Think about Solomon's life because this is the last thing we learn about Solomon in the scriptures. The last thing. The only other time he's mentioned in the Old Testament is Nehemiah. God was warning Israel about intermarrying with some of these groups. And so Nehemiah says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the nations there was no king like him, 
and he was loved by his God, and God gave him to be king over Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. What a tragic way to be remembered that your name is now being used to warn Israel, a future generation. Don't be like Solomon. It's interesting how all of the good, all of the positives can be destroyed by one act of sin in many respects. Think about the number of spiritual leaders and pastors and authors and speakers all over the world that we see fall and stumble. There's been over the last just five to ten years a number of very well-known Christian evangelical preachers and pastors of large churches that have written busloads of books and hold conferences and build, in many respects, denominations off of their church that at the end of their ministries have stumbled and fallen pretty seriously. I don't need to name the names. You're familiar with many of them. The purpose isn't to speak ill of them, but simply to say that it happens. What a tragedy that is when one thing like that can destroy a lifetime of faithfulness. The question that's often asked when it comes to Solomon, it's even vigorously debated, is whether or not Solomon was saved and where he is today. That's not an easy question to answer. Um... Some are convinced that Solomon ultimately repented at the end of his life. Um, they believe that he's saved. They claim verses like 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God says to David, My loving kindness shall not be removed from him, which they believe is a reference to Solomon, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And so some will camp on that verse saying, Well, God says that his loving kindness is faithfulness to Solomon. Remember that word loving kindness is the idea of covenant faithfulness and loyalty. Um, they also claim that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by a repentant Solomon. And so when you get to the end of Ecclesiastes and you read these words, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. If that indeed was Solomon writing that, that would seem to suggest that maybe he repented at the end of his life. Um, The challenge to that is that the Bible never says that Solomon repented. In fact, the very last thing we see in chapter 11 is a very hard, unrepentant heart with Solomon. We also see Nehemiah use him as an example in chastising Israel. So that's the challenge for us. We can speculate and say that, oh, he must have repented. We can hope that he was. Um, I don't have an answer to that. It's a hard piece of the puzzle. I don't believe that we can really know for sure. I personally believe that the book of Ecclesiastes, as I've shared before, was not penned by Solomon himself, but rather by a prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who, in essence, wrote a book... Um, he, you can see his words in the beginning of the book and you can see his words at the end because they're written, in the, written about the preacher but then in the middle of the book bulk of the book it's written in the first person as if it's Solomon and I, and I believe that the perspective on the book that we should follow is that the author was writing 
the words of an unrepentant Solomon through the book of Ecclesiastes so that he could use it as an example to Israel and to his own son because at the end of the book, in essence, what he does is he warns his son, don't be like Solomon. Look at what life turns out to be when you forsake the Lord. Now, does that mean he was unsaved? Does that mean he's not in heaven? I can't answer those questions. I don't think we will ever know. The Lord himself is the only one who knows. But I do know one thing, that everything in the Old Testament is written as a tutor to lead us to Christ, which means that it's there for us to learn something from it. And I think our takeaway from all this should be about the need to remain faithful and steadfast. I mean, even when Nehemiah said, if it can happen even to Solomon... That's a warning to all of us. The Bible promises us that if we're truly saved, if we're truly saved, if we're born again, then we will inherit eternal life. That's going to the book of Romans. You see that we are promised that the Lord will remain faithful to us. One of the advantages we have today that they didn't have in the Old Testament is that when we confess faith in Jesus Christ, we are regenerated, we are changed. So I don't believe that we can be unregenerated um, Paul even mentioned some examples in the book of Corinthians on some believers who the Lord took their life <laughs> because they couldn't get control of their sin. And so God, has, in essence, took their life, we're told, to save their souls. So if we are genuinely saved, genuinely born again, the Lord will remain faithful to us. However, the Bible, in spite of that, is filled with warnings to us to remain steadfast. Listen to just some of them. I'll tell you the verse. I'll read it. We're going to go through about five or six of them here so you don't have to flip around. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a lake, a yoke of slavery, meaning sin. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. But now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the Lord's plan for us. Holy and blameless before him, beyond reproach, if, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The last one I'll mention is Second Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Be diligent. It takes work. So the Bible is filled with not just hope of our eternal resting place, hope in eternal security, but it's also balanced by these charges to be steadfast. When I put that together, I, I think to myself, you know, they are both true in the sense that we have to work diligently at our faith. We're not saved by that work, but once we're saved, we are to be diligent 
and walking in faithfulness and steadfastness. And that takes work. We are constantly bombarded, not just by the world around us. It's difficult to live in this world, isn't it? It's difficult not to adapt, not to allow them to impact us, not to allow them to change us. You know, Solomon fell into that trap. Every other king is building these alliances with all these nations and marrying and marrying and marrying and building harems and building wealth. And why not me? And look where it led him. It's hard when we have those pressures on the outside. We have the pressure of being persecuted that makes it very difficult for us to continue to walk in the way that we walk. I was thinking about this. You guys may know better than me. I'm not a hockey fan, but this hockey player just recently that, um, I don't remember where it was, but professional hockey player, they had a big LGBT night that they did. So they had all the jerseys decked out with the rainbows and everything. And he simply decided to sit out the pregame activities. And he has been getting hammered, just hammered by the public, by sports figures, by media. He's been very gracious the way that he's handled it. But, man, they're calling for this guy to be pulled out of the league and everything else. And it's just brutal. And there's been two or three other examples like that with just Christians in general. It's hard. We get those pressures. But then you get on top of that, you think about the enemy and what the enemy wants to do to us. Peter was told he was... Enemy wanted to sift them like wheat. So we have these intense pressures from outside and even from the enemy spiritually, if you will, that make it difficult for us to remain faithful, to stay steadfast. Now we're promised the Holy Spirit, our great helper, which we couldn't do it without, but it still doesn't excuse us. It's still, we have to be steadfast. We still have to be diligent. So there's one overarching lesson that we can learn from Solomon. It's the need to remain steadfast and faithful to the Lord. Solomon allowed his love towards God to grow cold and his heart to be turned away after other things. Gold, silver, horses, chariots, and wives who ultimately turned his heart towards other gods. I find this interesting. We oftentimes talk about bookends in the scriptures. A passage sometimes is bookended by something. And we have bookends in this too. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, the first thing we learn about Solomon is it says, Solomon loved the Lord. What's the last thing we learn about Solomon? It says, now Solomon loved many foreign women. Those are your bookends to the story of Solomon. It begins with Solomon loved the Lord. It ends with Solomon loved many women and ultimately then held fast to these idols in love. How would you like your life to be bookended that way? Or would you rather have it bookended with he loved the Lord, she loved the Lord, and at the end, she loved the Lord, he loved the Lord. One last verse. Jesus warned us about this. Matthew chapter 24, verses 7 through 13. Why don't we go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 24. He said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom. He's talking about end times here primarily, but it applies to almost any time. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. 
Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. And then this is the part I wanted to really kind of camp on. Most people's love will grow cold. He's not talking about love in general there. talking about love of the Lord. The reason I know that is because oftentimes when your love for the Lord grows cold, it's because your love for other things has grown. Many of these people that is talking about here will love other things. And their love for the Lord will then grow cold. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. And I think the same thing is true with us. Jesus said that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is, and vice versa. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And so the key, I think, to remaining steadfast comes right down to the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the key to steadfastness, is where your love is. What do you love? Jesus said in the end it will grow cold. Why? Because they're going to love other things. Solomon's love grew cold. Why? Because Solomon loved other things. So, I'm going to leave us with that. It's, in many respects, a depressing message, but it should offer us hope because, really, God has not made it all that hard. One of the things I'm struck by is that when God had given Israel this long list of commandments, 670-some, he follows it up and he tells them, he says, but it's not too hard for you. What do you mean it's not too hard? He gave us this whole long list of it. But he says, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It all falls into place. And so it's no different for us. If we love the Lord with every ounce of our being, we'll walk in steadfastness. We won't find ourselves facing the same anger that the Lord directed towards Solomon. Amen?